Happy Saturday, and thank you for joining me today. We begin tonight with Ralph Wilson, who, if that name sounds familiar to you or you know someone by that name, uh, you probably do not link them or associate them with the city of Detroit, Michigan. Uh, because in 1960, Ralph Wilson became the founder and the owner of a prominent football team. Essentially, he, he founded this team called the Buffalo Bills right in 1960, uh, which is now a prominent football team. They've had legendary players such as Jim Kelly, Jack Kemp, and O.J. Simpson. And when Ralph Wilson died in 2014 at 95 years old, the Buffalo Bills was up for sale for the very first time. Wilson had been the owner and the founder of this team for, for 54 years, this prominent archetypal and legendary NFL team. When the team went up for sale, a lot of people jumped in the ring, such as an affluential food service owner, a natural gas billionaire, a Manhattan real estate developer, a bond investor, the owner of Past Blue Ribbon. And then there were some other very prominent contenders, uh, like rock legend John Bon Jovi and self-described millionaire Donald Trump. And so all these people were hopping in the ring to try and purchase this prominent NFL team, the Buffalo Bills, to try to become the new owner and founder of this legendary football team. And it was really, essentially, it was really like a once in a blue moon occasion, right? Because it's, it's rare for NFL teams to ever come on the market for anything. So this was a big deal. During this fight for this legendary NFL team, uh, things went specifically haywire and got a little controversial and uh, sort of, I guess, sort of crazy between Donald Trump and rock legend John Bon Jovi. Rumors started spreading that if John Bon Jovi became the owner of the team, he was going to move it across the border to Canada. What? Really? And it ultimately turned out that that was not true. Those rumors were not accurate. Uh, those were all made up and concocted by Trump-hired Republican veteran associate and Buffalo resident Michael Caputo, who is a close confidant of Paul Manafort and Roger Stone. That's the guy who Trump essentially had asked to make up these rumors so he could perhaps get the team instead of John Bon Jovi or the other prominent contenders. Ultimately, none of those dirty tricks worked um, and none of those dirty tricks were successful. It ultimately ended up going to the Buffalo. It ultimately ended up going to the natural gas billionaire. He got the Buffalo Bills um, and he kept the team there in Buffalo. But in 2019, former President Trump's per, uh, former President Trump's former personal attorney testified to Congress that Trump may have inflated his assets in order to get a bank loan to get that team. But anyway, that guy, Michael Caputo, this longtime Republican veteran op operative um, who concocted these rumors out of John Bon Jovi got the bills, he would move them somehow across the border to Canada. Uh, that guy is now back in the news, and it's not for a good reason. All right, here's the outset. Okay. In December of 2019, um, some of the early reports of the coronavirus emerged from China. By January 17, 2020, the CDC announced that it was screening people who traveled from Wuhan, China, because of new infections, because of new infectious disease uh, hitting that city. And th th that was the CDC's first public briefing. Uh, BuzzFeed News writes, quote, there, was, there were many reasons why the information the CDC had on January 17th was wrong. It was wrong because the Trump administration officials had cut CDC staffers in Beijing who might have reported the truth directly from China, end quote. So this raises a question, right? I mean, why would the Trump administration reduce the number of CDC staffers in China, thinking that a pandemic was not inevitable? I mean, as you've heard before from, from like former national security advisor under the Obama administration, Susan Rice, and other former Obama administration officials that left the Trump administration with a pandemic readiness guide, this was bound to happen. And they just decided to tuck that in a jar somewhere. And not only that, but previous presidents have said something of this proportion was likely to happen as well. This is a clip of President Bill Clinton in 1996. We also have President George W. Bush and President Obama making those same warnings about a potential pandemic in the future. Diseases know no boundaries. They threaten us all. At some point, we are likely to face another pandemic. There may and likely will come a time in which we have both an airborne disease 
that is deadly. Those were warnings from former President Bill Clinton in 1996, former President George W. Bush, and former President Barack Obama. And those warnings weren't only echoed by previous presidents, but also from one of the Trump administration's secretaries. Secretary of Health and Human Services Alex Azar spoke uh, essentially in, in 2019. He spoke at this big event and he, he was asked, what keeps you up at night? What worries you? And he said, another pandemic. From January to early March of 2020, it was known as the coronavirus epidemic until the World Health Organization declared this a pandemic on March 11th. Once I honestly, I'll be honest with you, once I searched up the definition, I was literally terrified. Um, it was absolutely devastating and the whole world just stopped. Schools, businesses, churches, restaurants and other places that were a part of our normal life began to close. On that same day, March 11th, the CDC vanished and was turned into President Trump's accomplice in downplaying the pandemic. BuzzFeed News further reports, quote, as the White House's coronavirus task force replaced the CDC as the main information source for a fearful public, Trump's increasingly erratic messages, such as his calls for treatment with an unvetted malaria drug, his refusal to wear a mask, and his attacks on scientists politicized a nationwide health crisis. End quote. So the federal government response was met with downplaying lies, deception, misinformation, and conspiracy theories. And while that was happening, people were dying. Some Republican-controlled states were calling this a hoax and following the president's message by reopening after the president tweeted uh, statements like liberate Michigan, liberate Minnesota, and liberate other states as well. And people began coughing on each, deliberately coughing on each other. States were loosening their COVID-19 restrictions and people were just refusing to wear a mask. While that was going on, our nationwide death toll and infections kept rising and rising and rising. During this, doctors and other public health officials continued sounding the alarm about the severity of this virus. We also know now that even former President Donald Trump knew it was serious at the time, according to an audio recording captured by legendary Washington Post reporter Bob Woodward. You know, it's a very tricky situation. It's, uh, it, goes, it goes through air, Bob. That's always tougher than the touch. You know, the touch, you don't have to touch things, right? But the air, you just breathe the air, and that's how it's uh, passed. And so that's a very tricky one. That's a very delicate one. Uh, it's also more deadly than your... You know, your, even your strenuous flus. You know, people don't realize we lose 25,000, 30,000 people a year here. Who, who would ever think that, right? I know. It's I mean, much it's pretty forgotten. amazing. And uh, then I say, well, is that the same thing? For, this is uh, more right. deadly. This is 5 per, you know, this is 5% versus 1% and less than 1%. You know, so this is deadly stuff. Now it's turning out it's not just old people, Bob, just today and, and yesterday. Some startling facts came out. It's not just old, older yeah, exactly. young people to plenty of young people. So give me a moment of talking to somebody, going through this with Fauci or somebody who kind of uh, it caused a pivot in your mind because it's clear just from what's in on the public record that you went through a pivot on this to, oh my God, the gravity is uh, almost inexplicable and unexplainable. Well, I think, Bob, really, to be honest with you... Sure, I want you to I be. wanted to. Uh, I wanted to always play it down. I still like playing it down. Yes, sir. Because I don't want to create a panic. Quote, because I don't want to create a panic. End quote. Uh, that was that tape by Bob Woodward was recorded in February. It was released in September of 2020, just two months before the presidential election. Of course, over the course of his administration's response, more than 400,000 Americans died on his watch. And this is where Michael Caputo comes back into the story. Uh, this is reporting from Dan Diamond at the Washington Post recently. Quote, Trump appointees in the Department of Health and Human Services last year privately touted their efforts to block or alter scientists' reports on the coronavirus to align with then-President Donald Trump's more optimistic messages more closely 
um, about the outbreak, according to a newly released, according to newly released documents from congressional investigators. The documents provide further insight into how senior Trump administration officials approached last year's explosion of coronavirus here in the United States. Even as career government scientists worked to combat the virus, a cadre of Trump scientists was attempting to blunt the a cadre of Trump appointees, excuse me, were attempting to blunt the scientist or messages, edit their findings, and equip the president with an alternate set of talking points. Then science advisor Paul Alexander wrote to then HHS public affairs chief Michael Caputo on September 9th, 2020, touting two examples of where he said officials at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention had bowed to his pressure and changed language in their reports, according to an email obtained by the House Selects Committee on the Coronavirus Outbreak, pointing to one change in which CDC leaders allegedly changed their, the opening sentence of a report um, about the spread of the virus among younger people after Alexander pressured them. Alexander wrote to Michael Caputo, calling it a, quote, small victory, but a victory nonetheless, and yippee, end quote. The Washington Post article continues, quote, in the same email, Alexander touted another example of a change to a weekly report from the CDC that he said the agency made in response to his demands. The Morbidity and Mortality Weekly Reports, or MMWRs, which offer public uh, updates on scientists' findings had been considered uh, essentially sacrosanct for decades and untouchable by political appointees in the past. Two days later, Alexander appealed to the White House to White House advisor Scott Atlas, which, by the way, I should also note, is a radiologist, not necessarily qualified in terms of epidemiological studies and also essentially coronavirus and virologists, virology stuff like that. So just note there. The, the article continues, quote, to help him dispute an upcoming CDC report on coronavirus-related deaths among young Americans. Quote, can you help me craft an op-ed? Alexander wrote to Atlas on September 11th, alleging the CDC report was, quote, timed for the election and an attempt to keep schools closed even as Trump pushed to reopen them. Quote, let us advise the president and get permission to preempt this, please, for it will run for it will run for the weekend, so we need to blunt the edge as it is misleading." End quote. Alexander and other officials strategized on how to help Trump argue to reopen the economy in the midst of the coronavirus pandemic, uh, despite scientists warning about the potential risk. Quote, I know the president wants to enumerate the economic cost of not reopening. We need solid estimates to be able to say something like 50,000 more cancer deaths, 40,000 more heart attacks, 25,000 more suicides. Caputo wrote to Alexander on May 16th in an email obtained by the subcommittee. Quote, you need to take ownership of these numbers. This is singularly important to what you and I want to achieve, Caputo added in a follow-up email, urging Alexander to compile additional data on the consequences of virus-related shutdowns. Atlas, Alexander, and Caputo did not immediately respond to comment, did not immediately respond to request for comment. Many of the Trump administration officials clashing with government scientists had little or no previous experience in combating infectious disease. Michael Caputo, a GOP political communications consultant and longtime Trump ally, had not previously worked in public health before Trump installed him to oversee the health department's communications in April of 2020. Alexander, who was not a physician but recruited as Caputo's handpicked science advisor, had previously had an unpaid part-time health professor at Canada's McMaster University. Atlas was a, neuro a neuroradiologist and senior fellow at Stanford University's conservative Hoover Institution who caught the White House's attention after defending the Trump administration's handling of the coronavirus pandemic on Fox News. Quote, our investigation has shown that the Trump administration's the Trump administration officials engaged in a persistent pattern of political interference in the nation's public health response um, to the coronavirus pandemic, overruling and bullying scientists and making harmful decisions that allowed the virus to spread more rapidly. Congressman James Clyburn, Democrat of South Carolina, the subcommittee chairman, wrote to Alexander and Atlas. End quote. Once again, that was reporting from, from Dan Diamond at the Washington Post about the pressure and attacks on scientists during the Trump administration 
amid the coronavirus pandemic. That subcommittee, um, chaired by South Carolina Democratic uh, Congressman James Clyburn, is now requesting an interview with Alexander and Atlas for the uh, committee's investigation uh, by May 3rd. So they have to respond to requests for comment for that interview by May 3rd of this year. So we will keep you updated on this story as this develops. It's just a horrific story um, in the way that these Trump in the way that these Trump officials celebrated as the president was actively deceiving the public about the coronavirus pandemic, saying it'll all go away and stuff like that. But viewing the current coronavirus situation in multiple states, I do think that former President Trump's political pressure and attacks on scientists. Um, have left essentially a legacy after he has left office. I do think that they are having an effect even after his presidency. In multiple Republican states, we are seeing reopenings right now, Um, essentially full reopenings. Uh, Mask mandates are being repealed in crowded bars and restaurants. We are seeing that. You will recall just two months ago um, that Texas, a Republican-controlled state, fully reopened. That drew scathing criticism, not only from politicians, but from doctors on the front lines. This is one doctor speaking um, about the complete reopening in Texas. This is a Texas doctor. My biggest fear is that um, we're going we're gonna to lose more people and we're going to lose them faster. We're still masking up. Um, we're still taking all the precautions because we still have COVID patients. It's not like the COVID patients are gone. It's not like they're not dying. It's just that we no longer need a refrigerated truck outside is the deal. You know, our morgues have finally let up just a little bit so we can, you know, actually take care of these patients after they die and allow them to be buried properly. Um, We don't have people in the hallways anymore on stretchers. You know, we're not putting dead bodies in empty rooms at this point. Um, So we're breathing just a little bit easier, but it, it doesn't really, it's not better. Quote, it's not better end quote. That was a Texas doctor speaking about this major reopening amid the coronavirus pandemic in that state. The misinformation and attacks on science under the Trump administration are having a pernicious effect on society today, not only not only here in the United States, but in other countries as well. I mean, other countries emulated our response to the pandemic, such as India and Brazil. We saw President, uh, we saw President Bolsonaro of Brazil Um, essentially speak about the coronavirus pandemic in these conspiratorial terms. He also spoke about the the vaccination process in conspiratorial terms, saying that we all die someday in early June amid the coronavirus pandemic and the surge in that country. Countries who have emulated our pan, countries have, who have emulated the way we led the war, the way we led amid this pandemic, they literally have the worst crisis right now. They are, they are having some, they are in the midst of some of the worst crises right now on earth with this pandemic because they emulated our response. We're the United States. Most countries were, were, were supposedly the envy of the world. Most countries follow after us. And that's what happened in some other countries. And so they're now seeing this exponential surge again because they emulated our response. And not only are people consistently not wearing or refusing to wear a mask, but Republican states are reopening. Also, some other states as well. There are conspiracy theories circulating about COVID-19, and many people have become numb to the coronavirus numbers in this country. I mean, when was the last time you heard reporting on COVID-19 deaths or cases or hospitalizations? I mean, in, in most states, those numbers are coming down, but we still need to keep track of these things. Here in the United States, we've lost more than 561,000 souls to this pandemic. I mean, think about the detrimental toll that has that has been for their family members. Not only that, but more than 31 million people here in the U.S. have been infected with COVID. We also have COVID-19 long haulers. We're going to have reporting on that tomorrow. We have been in this for a year now, and we are dealing with the coronavirus variants. This is really a major concern, especially here in the United States. And one of the variants that has public health officials essentially sweating is the UK variant, scientifically known as the B117. And it is here in the United States and has been found in 130 other countries. 
Um, but in Europe, we are seeing the the scientific, and we, we're essentially seeing the pernicious effect of this variant in particular. This is from the New York Times, quote, Europe, the epicenter of the coronavirus pandemic last spring, has once again swelled with new cases, which are inundating some local hospitals and driving a worrisome global surge of COVID-19. But this time, the threat is different. The rise in new cases is being propelled by a coronavirus variant first seen in Britain and known as B117. The variant is not only more contagious than last year's virus, but also deadlier. The variant is now more contagious in at least 114 countries. Nowhere, though, are its devastating effects as visible as in Europe, where thousands are dying each day in countries already battered, and the country's already battered economy uh, are, are countries already battered economies are once again being hit by new restrictions on daily life. End quote. According to NPR.org, in Brazil, they are also seeing an exponential increase in coronavirus cases due to another coronavirus variant. We're going to have more reporting on that later on tomorrow, actually tomorrow. In the Bay Area in California, a new variant was just recently discovered last Sunday. President Biden spoke about these new variants. Uh, President Biden spoke about the, the new variants and the current ones that we have, and also the rise, the, their effects, which have led to a rise in hospitalizations and cases. He spoke about that earlier this week. There's a lot of good news, but there's also some bad news. New, new variants of the virus are spreading and they're moving quickly. Cases are going back up. Hospitalizations are no longer declining. While deaths are still down, way down from January, they're going up in some places. So you might ask, everybody's asking, what does that mean? I understand that people may find it confusing that the vaccination program is saving tens of thousands of lives, but the pandemic remains dangerous. Let me explain it in a single word, time time. That was President Biden speaking earlier this week. As far as we know, all three vaccines in the United States, Pfizer, Moderna, and Johnson & Johnson, are still very effective against these variants. According to CBS News, the United States is seeing a surge, essentially seeing a rise in infections for the fourth consecutive week as these variants spread, and young people are leading this new surge. Michigan, Minnesota, and Colorado are in the midst of what appears to be their fourth wave. We're going to have special reporting on that tomorrow. I promise you don't want to miss it. But when it comes to vaccinations, we are doing well for that. Uh, we are doing well. But for those of you who are still reluctant to get the vaccine, um, I want to play this for you. So this is a clip of MSNBC host Rachel Maddow um, encouraging others to get vaccinated after she herself just did it. I had legitimate fears and ugginess. I felt the fear and I did it anyway. And so just listen, if you are like me, if you have been feeling oogie <laughs> or resistant, or if you've just been dragging your feet about whether or not you're gonna get the vaccine, I get it. You are not a jerk or some sort of fool or some conspiracy theorist for feeling that way. Lots of us have lots of reasons to feel reluctant or even scared or to try to hope this is all gonna blow over for everybody and we won't ever have to personally get the shot ourselves. I am right there with you, I totally get it. But here's the thing, here's the thing that I feel like I have total clarity about now having done it. It's not for you. You are not doing this for yourself. If you are at all like me, your own health, your own risk is not a big rational driver of all of your actions. Maybe you feel fatalistic, you know, oh, if I get COVID, I get it, I get it. Maybe you feel like your odds are good that you almost certainly won't get a bad case if you do get COVID, you know, fair enough. You know, if that's how you feel about your own COVID risk and you're weighing that kind of distant, not that concerning risk to yourself against all the very present ways you feel bad and worried about the vaccine, then, you know, you're maybe thinking the vaccine feels like the more present danger. It feels like the more dangerous, the more onerous worry. I, I get it. I understand that balance. But you are not getting the vaccine for you, even if you don't care that much if you yourself are going to get COVID. I know you should care, but a lot of us don't, right? A lot of us don't, aren't wired that way. We're, 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 we're risk tolerant in terms of ourselves. Even if you don't care that strongly about whether you yourself are going to get COVID or it's a risk that you feel like you're willing to take or you can't do anything about it, you feel fatalistic about it. 
what you do care about, what will move you, what does tip the scales decisively in favor of you going and getting that shot that you really don't want, is this. It's that you really do not want to be the person who gets it and then spreads it to other people. Regardless of how you feel about the risk of getting it yourself. I mean, God forbid, God forbid, if you don't get vaccinated because of whatever's driving your reluctance, I don't care. I understand. It's all reasonable stuff in many cases. But God forbid, if you don't get vaccinated and then you get COVID and you unknowingly spread it to other people, who you know or who you encounter, and those people get sick from it or die from it. Those people give it to their family members, and then their mom or their dad dies from it because of you. Because you wouldn't get vaccinated. I mean, God forbid. I mean, could you live with yourself in that circumstance? If you had the choice to get vaccinated and you decided, no, nah, I'm scared, and then that decision costs somebody else that you know their life because they got it from you. It's not for you. I mean, if you get vaccinated, your risk of getting really sick or dying from COVID yourself, that risk drops to basically zero. And that's true with all the vaccines. But what is more important to me in the way that I'm wired and what may be more important to you is that if you get vaccinated, your chance of ever spreading the infection to somebody else just drops off a cliff. If you get vaccinated, yeah, you saved yourself. I know you don't care. More importantly, you have saved everybody else because now you're like 90% less likely to get infected and to be able to transmit it to anyone else. So even if you don't want to, get your vaccine so you don't ever kill anybody with COVID. Yes, it will protect you. But honestly, it's not for you. It's so you don't kill other people. It's so you don't spread it to other people. Because how could you live with yourself if you knew that you had done that? I mean, are you scared of getting the shot? Me too. Get a shot. Is your fear of the shot really more scary to you than the prospect that you are going to be a vector spreading a fatal virus to people around you if you don't get that shot. Just get it. Maybe you've told yourself you're playing it safe. You just want to wait and see since this is a new vaccine. No. 114 million Americans, nearly half the adult population in this country, has had a vaccine shot already. 114 million of us have had it. The number of people who have died from getting the shot is zero. Whereas the number of people who have died from getting COVID in this country is now approaching 560,000. So if you have been telling yourself this story that you're playing it safe, that you're not getting the vaccine because the vaccine is a relatively new thing. So you're playing it safe and not getting the vaccine. Think about it. If there are two paths and at the end of one path, there are zero deaths. And at the end of the other path, there are more than a half million deaths. Which one's the safer path? It is okay to feel reluctant or oogie or scared and not want to get it. That is nothing to be ashamed of. But feel the fear and do it anyway. Get it. Because most of all, it is not for you. It is to keep you from getting it and then spreading it. Seriously. If I can get it and like have such an emotional release from the fear and anxiety and relief and gratitude about it that I can cry through it like a baby in front of lots and lots of other people, including lots of people in uniform. If I can do it, you can do it. I do not recommend this angle for your selfie, nor do I recommend wearing a hat with a binder clip on the brim, but you can do it. If I can do it, you can do it. I recommend that you watch the full 11 minute video, which will be posted in the description of this episode there. But that was MSNBC host Rachel Maddow encouraging others to get vaccinated as well. There are also other, pro there are also others promoting getting the vaccine. Just recently, Arnold Schwarzenegger got vaccinated. He then tweeted this quote, today was a good day. I have never been happier to wait in a line. If you're eligible, join me and sign up to get your vaccine, end quote. Also, Tony Bennett, Patrick Stewart, Samuel Jackson, Dolly Parson, Tyler Perry, Dr. Fauci, and many other celebrities, legendary doctors, and other high-profile politicians have been vaccinated as well. As a nation on the coronavirus, we are improving, but in some states, we're seeing an increase in cases and deaths. And it does not appear, it, it does appear that vaccinations are working and are effective at quashing outbreaks and preventing more deaths, but there are some questions that I have here. Can the vaccines in the pandemic and do the coronavirus variants that we're seeing affect our ability to end the pandemic? And lastly, will, will we have a relatively normal summer? I have just the person to answer those questions and that's next. 
In this world where people are staying at home, many of life's moments are being put on hold. At Carvana, we understand that for some, getting a car just can't wait. That's why the new way to buy and sell a car is also the safer way. At Carvana, you can do it all 100% online from home with a touchless delivery and pickup process to keep you safe. And for even greater peace of mind, all Carvana cars come with a seven-day return policy. So if you need to keep moving, it's our goal to keep you safe. Check out Carvana, the safer way to buy a car. At a time when we're asked to sacrifice, we step up to do our part. On the home front, on the front lines, to lend a helping hand and hold each other up. We are resilient, vigilant, and we'll get through this because we're better together, even if we're a little farther apart. Joining me now for the interview is Dr. Anna Stratus. She worked in New York as a doctor uh, amid the apex of the coronavirus pandemic in April of 2020. Uh, Dr. Stratus, thank you so much for coming back on the show. Oh yeah, it's good to see you again, Jeremiah. How, how do you feel now that you have been vaccinated? Yeah, I mean, oh, that's a good question. So I've received the first dose of the vaccine. Mm -hmm. um, weirdly, um, I feel the, the biggest thing that I feel is that I've um, fulfilled a, I feel like I've, I've pitched into the public health effort to increase the number of vaccinated people so that I'm protecting other people. So that feels really important to me. Mm -hmm. um, as somebody who's had COVID, um, I feel like it was just really important for me. There's always a small chance that I could have gotten reinfected and infected other people. So that's the important thing is I have, have received one dose. I need to get the second dose in four weeks, but um, I now feel like I'm, I'm taking responsibility for other people's lives. In addition to keeping on wearing my mask, uh, limiting my social encounters, keeping physical distance, uh, all that sort of stuff is, is uh, playing in. Mm-hmm. Um, Rachel Maddow on MSNBC last night essentially said the same thing that you're saying. Um, she just got vaccinated and she said she said how, how relieved and excited she was. And in that opening, she spoke particularly um, to the people who were reluctant to get the vaccine. Mm. Um, and she said, you're not getting it for you. You're getting it for someone else. And then oh, she explained, yes. if you don't mm. get the vaccine, God forbid you give COVID to someone else's to someone else because you decided not to get vaccinated. She went on to say, could you live with yourself knowing that you gave COVID to them or God oh. forbid they died or got seriously ill? I wonder if that aligns with the way you view this situation as a doctor. Yeah, I mean, it's funny that you say exactly that. As I was going for a vaccination, mm -hmm. um, it really, it's my public health duty. It, it is not a matter, uh, this vaccination, everything about this vaccine, this global vaccination mass immunization event is not to do with the individual person. Mm -hmm. and, and to push this into slightly controversial areas, when we look at the rare adverse effects of certain vaccines, this is not an individual thing. This is, we're doing this for the planet. We're doing this for the globe. So yes, in any vaccine, you're gonna have these rare side effects and they're gonna happen at, on the order of like 20 per million. But we all undergo that risk so that we can get the planet vaccinated. And, and I'm getting vaccinated so that people who are less fortunate, countries that can't get vaccine because uh, you know uh, developed countries have been hoarding the vaccines, um, you know, we're getting vaccinated so we can help others. Mm -hmm. I think um, more or less now what the motivating news about getting the vaccine is, the motivating result is that once you are fully vaccinated, um, you can then go see other family members. Um, and mm -hmm. I had a niece who was born in January, haven't been able to hold her yet. And I think, oh. <laughs> I think oh. the exciting thing now is if you get vaccinated, you will be able to do those things. So what's your message to those people who are reluctant to get vaccine, to get the vaccine? And essentially, if they do, the, the, the potential reward? Yeah, I mean, the potential reward should be the public health contribution that you mm -hmm. are lowering the places that the COVID-19 virus can go. By eliminating yourself from the food chain of this virus, mm -hmm. you're, you're limiting its spread. But if that isn't enough, and often, again, we're in a highly individualized society right now. Everybody's out thinking for themselves. The good of the one is more important than the good of all. That's 
been this very bizarre shift in our recent civilization. So mm -hmm. if public health is not enough. <laughs> and as you can tell, as a physician, I, I really, really have troubles when we don't think about the common good. But anyways, if it's not, then then actually, I do think that, you know, in the UK, they're thinking about having um, proof of vaccination or or something along those lines to attend sporting events, to attend mm -hmm. concerts. And hell, why not? Um, if that's going to get you vaccinated because you want to go and see a football game, perfect. Um, mm -hmm. Let that be. <laughs> and, <laughs> I, I, you know, I, I'm kind of taking the gloves off here because um, you should want to protect your community. Mm -hmm. But if you want to attend that concert this summer and the only way is a vaccination, then yes, get vaccinated. <laughs> so yes. I actually wanted to ask you something um, along the lines of that, because I've been seeing mm -hmm. this on the news um, and they're doing it in other countries and they're experimenting with it and it's going pretty well. Essentially, it's called vaccination passports. So you yeah. can't really get into places unless you've been vaccinated. Mm -hmm. um, what do you think of that and how that could work in the U.S. if ever proposed? Yeah, I mean, it's a good question that uh, um, Jen Psaki has come out, the White House has said, no, we're not going to do that. That's an infringement mm -hmm. on, upon independent, um, you know, your your rights as, as, an, as an independent citizen. Um, and so obviously Europe is different, right? The UK is mm -hmm. different. I, I think fundamentally, I would agree with the WHO. It's it, to, to demand a passport for entry into something good, whether it be an airplane or an event, means that you're discriminating against the people who didn't have a fair chance of getting the vaccine. So mm -hmm. if you're in a country that hasn't had a strong vaccine rollout, then it's discriminatory. So on a global level, I would agree to, to, to have a vaccine passport is, is discriminatory. Mm -hmm. But what I would say is that in a, a situation where there is adequate vaccine and there's vaccine hesitancy, that's where I think the carrot and the stick might be needed. The vaccine passport might be needed to get uh, vaccine hesitant people to just get the jab. Hmm. So I'm of two minds. I mean, it's similar. And, I, and again, you know, I'm just treading into all sorts of controversial territory. A lot of kids get their vaccines because states require them for school attendance. And mm -hmm. If we didn't have that, then this bizarre, unscientifically founded wave of vaccine hesitancy would be causing substantial issues in the United States. We'd be seeing massive uh, pockets of measles and mumps and diphtheria and tetanus and so forth. Um, thankfully, the only thing that prevents us from having these huge resurgence of measles, for example, is the fact that kids have to get vaccinated to go to school. And a lot of people freak mm -hmm. out. They say it's an infringement upon their rights as a citizen and their independence, but um, it's public health, baby. Some things you just, <laughs> you know. And uh -huh. it, it, those who've worked for UNICEF, those who've seen vaccine preventable diseases in developing countries, who've actually, you know, I've seen a kid with blindness because they had measles. I've seen a mm -hmm. kid, you know, um, in an ICU paralyzed for 15 days because he got tetanus. Um, when you see that, you realize that, that this is, it's, vaccine hesitancy is a selfish thing that's born out of this bizarre, you know, independence, uh, you know, the, the, the one is better than the, than, than the all. And we've got to buck that. So if vaccine passports help us to just get people vaccinated, give her, <laughs> is what I say. Yeah. Um, in Europe, the coronavirus variants, according to recent reporting, um, they're showing a pernicious effect and showing how dangerous they are. Um, how concerned should we be about those variants here in the United States? Yeah, I think very concerned. And I, I think it's probably pointing to the natural history of this virus, which is that it is going to mutate. Mm -hmm. And it's going to mutate beyond where our natural immunity or our vaccine immunity might actually protect us. We, it's probably a harbinger of of future years to come where we're probably gonna need to get repeat immunizations, just like we get the flu shots. So mm -hmm. I'm worried in as much as we're just gonna, this thing ain't over. That's that's what worries me. Mm. Um, could the coronavirus variants um, affect our ability to end the pandemic or could it halt the current um, vaccination campaign? Yeah, I, I, if we can't get people vaccinated to outpace the variants, mm -hmm then we're in trouble. And even in countries that are looking like they've got good vaccine coverage, the population will remain unprotected if there's a certain, if the shift in the, in the coronavirus variants 
If the mutations happen to a point where it, it exceeds the natural immunity of a population, they're going to have to undergo immunization again. And mm -hmm. if and if they can't even get people vaccinated off the first, then we're going to have to get you know people boosted with the second uh, variant. It's it's going to be chaos. It's going to be constant catch up. So we're going to be chasing after the variants rather than getting ahead of the variants. Mm. I wonder if you think that the coronavirus variants uh, that we're seeing here in the United States, if those are contributing um, to the fourth wave that we're seeing in some states like Michigan and in Colorado. Oh yeah, no, certainly. Yeah, certainly. Hmm. Um, there is a new model out by the University of Washington Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation that says wearing a mask could save at least 14,000 lives from the coronavirus by August. Uh, what do you think of that promising projection? Um, you know, uh, suggestion that, that uh, oh, you know, we oh, our families, it's safe to gather with our family. Well, it's, it's not, and, and we keep forgetting that. So Easter just happened, Passover just happened. And so you're gonna have two weeks after that, big big swells in infection rates. I'm sorry, Dr. Stratus. So I, I kind of heard what you said. Um, there was a little bit of tech delay there. Could you please repeat that? Oh yeah. So yeah, we're seeing another wave. Um, and that those waves happen because of the variants. Sure, absolutely, because they're more infectious for sure. But we're also seeing it because people let up on the common sense measures that Dr. Fauci has always said mm -hmm. is masks, social distancing, limit your gatherings. Um, so every time that we, you know, honestly make a frankly selfish move and say, oh, it's okay for our family to gather, this exceptionalism that we see, we, we tend to fall prey to, and then mm -hmm. we're going to have a, a coronavirus outbreak in our family. So, you know, we just had, co we just had Easter and Passover, um, you know, people are out, you know, large gatherings and so mm -hmm. forth. And yeah, so two weeks later, you're going to see a big spike again, because we just forget the basics, mm -hmm. despite Dr. Fauci going hoarse every single day, saying the same thing. President Biden surpassed his goal of getting to 100 million people vaccinated in the United States in the first 100 days. Um, how do you think this effort is going so far? I mean, so the the, the effort in the United States is is phenomenal, and I, and I will say, you know, it is at the cost of other nations who just only wish that they could have this vaccine supply. But if I just leave that to the side, you know, the United States has done a really good job of decentralizing the vaccine, getting it out to pharmacies, getting it out to, you know, departments of public health. And, mm -hmm. you know, I've been a vaccinator now here in New York City, and it's just, it's wonderful. It's smooth. And, and I credit New York City. I don't credit, I don't think that's a federal thing at all. <laughs> it's just that New York City was ready for this. They developed these emergency pods with the hierarchy in place so that when COVID happened, they just clicked in the virus and I tell you, the, the level of um, organization of these vaccine pods are amazing. So I think the United States, this is kind of what the United States does well. They go hard or go home. They do things on a mass scale. Mm -hmm. They recruit the huge vaccination centers and they get the private sector involved, um, which most of the time the private sector does not work in alignment with, with the health of a population. But in this situation, especially if you give the pharmacies a profit, uh, motive, they're going to get into the game and they're going to be vaccinating people. And, and you know, the United States has done a good job of all hands on deck. They really have. Mm -hmm. We've seen um, celebrities and former presidents and other high profile politicians get vaccinated and encouraging others. Um, how important is that in terms of people who are reluctant or people who um, still are on the edge about getting vaccinated? Yeah, no, that's essential. That's essential. You know, one of the things that I have actually run across is the, the, the problem here is that the medical system has historically oppressed people, specific, uh, specifically folks who are Black, Latino, Indigenous. Mm -hmm. And so the issue here is while COVID is disproportionately killing folks of color, they have a very justifiable mistrust in the medical system. And so there's a lot of mistrust about the vaccine, a concern that this is um, a rehash of medical experimentation against people's will that has that has literally and absolutely happened in this country before. So mm -hmm. um, what's really 
sad and shameful is that folks of color are not stepping up for vaccines as much, yet they are in the firing range of this virus. So mm -hmm. what is really important is to get thought leaders and leaders of the community out to get their vaccines and to tell folks, look, this is, you know, yes, there's been historic oppression and, you know, uh, attempts at harm inflicted by the medical community before, but this, vi this vaccine has been has been developed in good faith and it is your best bet at at avoiding this uh, getting sick with this virus and having your family sick with this virus so I, I think that that's especially in vulnerable communities that's where celebrities and thought leaders and influential leaders need to step up and get and 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 very visibly get their vaccination it's really really important mm -hmm. because we're going to have a problem here where it's going to be affluential white folk who get good mm -hmm. vaccine coverage, but those are not the people who are necessarily in the firing range of this virus. So getting to vulnerable communities is absolutely paramount. Mm -hmm. um, and on that point there, there has been reporting about um, uh, in, like racial disparities in terms of getting the vaccine out in, in states like Florida, where um, it has essentially been produced to communities who are not necessarily um, in as grave danger or have been disproportionately affected as as people of color there so that definitely is a concern um absolutely yeah. based on the current coronavirus situation do you think that we will have a relatively normal summer if people uh, continue adhere adhering to the scientific advice good question um well i i think in certain ways um you know, the virus has been allowed to let loose for so long that, that there is, whether it's, you know, vaccine coverage versus natural immunity, because you've had, you know, I'm going to, you know, it's nearing it on a million people. I, I think it's maybe that's maybe being a bit too, um, you know, overhyping the numbers. But mm -hmm. I think because of vaccine coverage and because the virus has been able to rage now for, you know, it'll be a year and a half, the summer may end up looking quite normal but i don't necessarily look I, I don't necessarily think though that it's going to be because people are behaving well i think it's because states because of their you know uh ulterior motive to favor the economy over people's lives i think they're just going to do you know take away mask mandates and just allow people to go out on Dayto daytona beach and just you know have a free-for-all mm -hmm. so i think it's going to be a normal summer but i think that you're going to still have astronomical deaths but because the american people have been numbed you know once you pass 500,000 people what's another 300,000 right mm -hmm. you know whereas in canada where i'm from people the entire country now is locking down again and they're locking down because of like in the entire province of ontario 1500 cases right or mm -hmm. you know 20 deaths and in Canada, that's that's considered unforgivable. It's like 20 deaths or 30 mm -hmm. deaths or so forth. Or having 160 people in the ICUs across Ontario is unforgivable. That is, that is like red zone, right? Mm -hmm. So you're going to have Canada locked down because they don't tolerate death. It's it's all for one, one for all. Um, but in the U.S., I think that they're just going to make it a normal summer despite the deaths. So. Mm -hmm. Jeremiah, I think I've got like a mix of optimism, but also a, a, a really big dose of pessimism as well, because uh -huh. Americans have been desensitized to death. Mm -hmm. And it's like the, the channels flipped. It's like the new, honestly, I, I really think that the news, we're all about vaccinations now. No one cares about masks. No one yeah. cares about restricting their personal freedoms, that everybody's all gearing up for a normal summer. And come hell or high water, a normal summer will be delivered to the American people but there'll still be unforgivable deaths. It'll just be that the cycle, the news cycle has changed. So mm -hmm. everyone's gonna be reporting on something different. Uh, definitely, uh, one last question on that point there. Um, I've definitely seen the, the news coverage recently in what's going on on most outlets. And there definitely is reporting on um, the vaccinations. And I keep looking at the COVID numbers, I look at, our nation's COVID deaths every single day, about every single day, and look and say, wow, more than 561,000 people are dead. Mm -hmm. Really, no one else is covering that. Yes, yes. More than 31 million people in the United States have been affected by COVID-19. Yeah. Um, and I think that, as you said, we've been in this for like more than a year now. And so 
that we've really been desensitized to that. Um, do I wonder if you think that because of the strategy and the way the last administration led on this, that we um, are desensitized? If the last administration did better on this, would we still be sort of numb and really having a hard time grappling with half a million deaths right now? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And I see it, as I say, you know, I just crossed the border. I was in Canada and there's just, when you at the outset approach a crisis like this with a different mindset, that mindset tends to carry forward. It's the precedent sent at the beginning. Mm -hmm. So the former president basically and, and his administration and all the states that colluded with that ideology were like, human lives don't matter, corporations mm -hmm. over, over people's lives. And that has, that, that has remained with us. And so that has been why over half a million people have been allowed to just die. And the desensitization is absolutely because of the tone that was set in the prior administration. Had mm -hmm. Biden been in, in office and his administration, if they, it, you know, it would have been a totally different scene. Mm -hmm. It really would have. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. I do think that even though former President Trump is now out of office, I do think that we are seeing governors and mayors take on his COVID legacy, which is very, very dangerous. It is. Yeah. Yeah. Just, you know, no mask mandates, you know, oh, it's post-COVID world. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's winning a lot of points for the, the governors of these states. It's, yeah. it's you know, this bizarre, you know, um, independence, libertarian, rah, rah, no, you know, no government, um, governments shall not uh, suppress us and so forth. It just, you know, the rallying cries of the privileged who, who, whose communities aren't as affected by COVID. Mm -hmm. And there's this ethos of not thinking for the, the weakest among us. And that's how society is defined, is the way that the society thinks and considers and, and picks up the person who is the weakest. Mm -hmm. And America has proven that that is uh, not something that they do, and therefore is a weakened society. This sort of thinking has shone a light on the, the weaknesses and the cracks in, in the American uh, society. Absolutely. Once again, my guest is Dr. Anna Stratus. Uh, she worked in New York during the apex of the coronavirus pandemic in April of 2020. Uh, Dr. Stratus, thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Oh, it's a pleasure, Jeremiah. Thank you. Thank you. Meet the Ninja Foodie Air Fry Oven. Make fast, family-sized meals in the time it takes some ovens to preheat. With Ninja's superheated air, you can air fry for extra crispy, guilt-free, delicious results. And because it's a Ninja foodie, it can do things that no other oven can. And even flip up and out of the way. The Ninja Foodie Air Fry Oven, the oven that crisps and flips away. All right, so one last thing before we go here tonight. Um, tomorrow on the Jeremiah Patterson Show, I'll be producing two episodes. Um, I knew this episode might be uh, might be essentially a bit extended here because not only of the interview time frame, but also because of my opening monologue there about the coronavirus and the variants and some other pernicious effects that it's having. So tomorrow here on the Jeremiah Patterson Show, I'm going to be producing two episodes, very essential episodes. You are not going to want to miss that. That is tomorrow here on the Jeremiah Patterson Show. Also look forward to our special report on uh, what's going on in multiple states with the coronavirus. Also what's going on um, with our Democratic Republic and the, the fight that it's that it's taking right now as we are watching this. Thank you so very much for listening to this episode of the Jeremiah Patterson show. Please share this episode with a family and friend. If you, with a family member or a friend, if you enjoyed it, have a great day. Remember to stay positive and inspired and I will see you tomorrow.